Welcome to Element. If you are new, there are Bibles in the seat backs. you want to turn the rest of the lights on in the house, Mikey? Uh, there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't have one, you can use one. If you don't own one, we'd love for you to take one with you. Uh, there are sermon notes on the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. And on this side, you're going to get all the verses we're going through today and a little place for notes. On the back side, you get a couple paragraphs that reflect on what we talk about today. On the bottom of that, you get the questions to talk to one another about, your friends, your family, your gospel community, reflect on what we go through today. Uh, if you have a smart device, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. Once you download it, it just says Bible. You can click on More and then Events in your smart device in that app. We'll come up by GPS in that, and you will get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, and everything that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors at Element. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? And this is John chapter 20, verse 25, and it says, So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Let's pray. Father, this morning we ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who believe, who trust. Uh, in what you have done and what you have said, that you would lead us to be those whose lives are changed and are different because of what you have done and what you continue to do. Teach us to be those who understand the importance of what Easter and resurrection means. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so at Element right now, we are going through this New Testament book called James. We just don't hang people's names up on stage for the, for the sake of it. And so we're going, this is probably one of the earliest, if not the earliest, New Testament book that was ever written. And it was written by Jesus' half-brother, obviously named James. James did not believe in Jesus until really after the resurrection. And I know today we're very jaded when we hear things like that. Because we hear like, oh, James became the leader of the early church. Well, that was some cult that they founded and Jesus died and then James kind of took over because we all listen to fake news and have no idea what's real anymore. But I will tell you, that couldn't be further from the truth. See, James, what it took for him to believe Jesus was the Messiah was that Jesus died and then rose from the grave. Up until then, he thought Jesus just might be crazy. And I had originally written the book of James and was going to continue that on these mornings, especially when we got to Easter, and just keep walking through it. And what you would have gotten today was a whole message about money and the evils of money. And I'm sure you're very excited, especially if you brought some family with you. You're glad I changed that to what we're going to talk about. And I really think today might encourage you to come back if you've never come to church or if you have a lot of questions to kind of start to deal with those questions in a real and honest way because we are going to talk about one of Jesus' disciples who had a whole lot of doubts after the resurrection, this guy named Thomas. And that's why I thought today this would be a much better direction to go in. Because again, if you are new to church or don't like being around church or maybe don't like Christians or don't understand them, or you've been coming a while and still have a lot of questions. I got to tell you, everybody has dealt with doubt in their lives in one way or another. Some people who aren't believers in anything sometimes will look at Christians and they will say, how can they believe that? And sometimes they even feel like there's something wrong with Christians or maybe something wrong with them, that they can't come to a place where they believe in the exact same way. Maybe you think you're not cut out for belief. And if that's you, I want you to understand that every conscientious Christian 
Christian that I have ever met has had questions at some point in their lives. Their questions may have led them to a different place than you, but I think they've had some of the same questions. Maybe it's questions about the Bible when you hear a story and you think, what's up with that? Worldwide floods? One family on an ark where animals come two by two or more pairs, and that's how God saves and preserves life on earth? What about apparent contradictions in the Bible? I've heard about those. What are those? What about all those? Don't people care about those? What about things like hell? Or why if God is so loving, is there so much pain in the world? Questions about dinosaurs and wars and killings in the Old Testament. Things that look like slavery or, or sexism or why are Christians so hung up on sex all the time anyway? Or thinking maybe the teachings in the Bible Bible, the morality, it's so outdated. And how about Easter, right? You got a guy who lives 2,000 years ago, and he saves the world by being crucified on a cross? Really? And then he says, I'm going to bring peace. And yet people do horrible and atrocious things in his name. And then he says, he's going to come back right on the clouds to take the faithful with him. And all these things you find really hard to believe. And I get it. I, I think there may be people who call themselves Christians. After I run through that list, they might say, well, I didn't think I had questions, but now I got some questions. <laughs> you know, People have questions. I have had them too. And people think doubt is a reason you can't believe. And I will tell you, I think doubt, when it's dealt with correctly, is something that can lead us into deeper faith. The word faith and believe, it's actually this word called trust. It is, it is not mustering up enough emotions so you convince yourself something that you think is untrue is actually true. It's coming to a place that we trust. And sometimes there are things we, we are doubtful, and yet we'll still trust God in the midst of those. As a matter of fact, when we finish the book of James, going into the summer and into the fall, we're going to do this series called Never Read a Bible Verse. Not telling you not to read your Bible, but to read things actually in context. Context of culture, context of the Bible. And I'm going to cover most of those doubts I just mentioned a second ago. And see, because too many people today think in order to believe in Jesus, I just have to shut my mind off. And that is completely not true. So today, as I said, I want to talk about one doubter in particular. It's this guy, his name is Thomas. And in looking at him, I think we can figure out what to do with our own doubts. How not, not to never have doubts, but what do we do when we actually have them? And so when we talk about him, I want to tell you, I feel really, really bad for this guy because he gets this nickname that sticks with him for thousands of years, Doubting Thomas. It just sticks with him. I mean, Thomas is a guy when Jesus was going to go raise his buddy Lazarus from the dead, all the disciples are like, but the Jews will kill us. And Thomas is like, if he's going to go, let's go die with him. That's Thomas. But at one point in his life, he has a doubt, and that is what he's remembered for forever. You don't see the other disciples being remembered for their worst moments, like Peter is not Peter the denier. And, and James the apostle, not Jesus' brother, but James wasn't James the judgmental. But forever, Thomas gets labeled Doubting Thomas. Now, Thomas' story comes about like this. Jesus crucified, and Friday goes by, and then Saturday goes by, and then Sunday comes along, and Mary Magdalene, one of Jesus' followers, goes to the tomb early in the morning. And she finds the stone that was put in front of the tomb rolled away. They put that stone there to keep grave robbers out. And when she sees it rolls away, the instantly, what does she think? Grave robbers. She doesn't think resurrection. Nobody's looking for resurrection. Nobody understands that. Jesus died. He's going to rise from the grave. No one's thinking that. So she goes there. She sees grave robbers. Oh, my goodness. So she runs and she tells the disciples. And Peter and John head to the tomb. John's younger, so he's faster. 
Funny, in John's gospel, he mentions that I outran Peter. But then Peter's got more guts. Peter's got more guts, and he goes into the tomb, and he sees the grave clothes that were, Jesus was wrapped in all folded up. And this tells Peter two things. Number one, it wasn't a burglar, because burglars don't typically fold up the clothes when they're done. And secondly, a miracle took place. Not because a dude folded his own clothes, but because he starts to think about all the things that Jesus said, and it leads him to resurrection. And Jesus will show up to verify that. Now, if you have a Bible, open to John chapter 20. I'm going to go to a bunch of different places, but keep coming back to John chapter 20. So later this night, after Peter and John go there, Jesus appears to the disciples in the middle of a room that is locked because they are afraid that they are also going to be crucified just like Jesus. In John 20, 19, Jesus says, peace be with you to calm them down because they're all terrified. But Thomas is not there. This is why when they tell Thomas about this, Thomas makes that statement, John 20, 25, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails, can you just imagine that? Just, ugh. And place my hand into his side, that is kind of gross, I will never believe. But you have to appreciate the honesty of Thomas. I know later in his life, this is probably one of the top five things he wishes he never said. I mean, we, we all have those, right? And I mean, his gets repeated for 2,000 years in the Bible. That's wonderful. Have you ever said something you wish you didn't say that people make fun of you for? Couple weeks, yeah, a couple weeks ago, I was talking about Vladimir Putin up here, and I couldn't say Putin. I said puke Putin. And then for a week, people were making fun of me for saying puke Putin. But it's only a week. It's not 2,000 years like this guy. Now, here's the thing. Lots of people in the gospel accounts had doubts. Not just Thomas, but he's the poor guy that's remembered for it. So, John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, Jesus called him the greatest prophet of all time. And he had doubts about Jesus at one point. At one point, he gets discouraged because he thought Jesus was going to chase the Romans out and set up an earthly kingdom in Israel. And instead, what Jesus is doing is he's calling people to himself. He is loving people. He's healing Gentiles. And so John kind of sends this passive-aggressive note to Jesus in Luke 7, 19 and says, Are you the one or should we look for another? In other words, was I mistaken? Are you not really who I thought you were? John is this guy who saw Jesus far off and he said, that's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, he baptizes Jesus. The heavens open up and God says, this is my son. I am well pleased with him. And John had some doubts. Uh, James, the, again, the brother of Jesus. We're doing that series through his book. John 7, verse 5, we are told that James, again, the guy who, who leads the early church in Jerusalem, who writes the book of James, doubted Jesus publicly and accused him of losing his mind. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus tells his disciples to meet him at this place. He is getting ready to ascend into heaven. He has shown himself to these people multiple times. Matthew 28, verses 16 and 17. Meanwhile, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. He is getting ready to levitate into the sky. And some of the apostles are going, ah, I'm not sure about all this. 
The point is, lots of people doubted, not just Thomas. But what they did in the midst of those doubts is they trusted who Jesus was in the midst of it. The Gospel of John is really all about belief. John 20, verses 30 and 31, so if you're there, says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And he will tell Thomas's story last. Why? I think because Thomas is one of the best examples in the entire book of someone who had doubts who maybe wouldn't believe and came to a place of trusting Christ in his life. And Thomas will make one of the boldest statements in all of scripture in John 20, 20, 20 28. He will say, my Lord and my God. I mean, it might be a mouthful, but maybe we could start to call him overcoming his doubting Thomas. Right? And we can do that. I mean, so how does it happen? Why does, how does it happen? Could, could this happen for you? Could it really? Okay, well, first off, Thomas has 10 friends, right? These other disciples, they are trustworthy. They don't send them to fake news sites. They just tell them the truth of what's actually going on. And if you had 10 friends that you really trusted and they all said to you the same thing, you would most likely believe them, but not Thomas. Why not? Well, first off, Thomas felt that Jesus was a failure as a Messiah. In their minds, the Messiah was going to come and chase the Romans out of the country. They were going to destroy all of Israel's enemies. And instead, Jesus comes and befriends Romans. He befriends tax collectors. Uh, tax collectors worked for the Romans. He befriends prostitutes. Jesus, instead of revolting against Rome, dies on a cross in shame and humiliation by Rome. In his mind, there is no category for a suffering Messiah. That is not what the Messiah would do. If you got crucified, you were obviously not the Messiah. And so the second thing is that Jesus has disappointed Thomas personally. Personally. Thomas will spend three years with Jesus in his public ministry watching him, coming to this place where he trusts what Jesus is saying and what he is doing. And then that person he put all his faith in gets crucified. Thomas is humiliated. Any friends that weren't the disciples were probably telling him he was dumb for following Jesus, and now they're proved right. Oh, Thomas, I told you so. Thomas bet all he was on Jesus, and in his mind, because it didn't turn out the way that he wanted, he thought that it failed. Now, can you relate to Thomas? Has God ever done something that you didn't understand, that you didn't like, that you didn't expect? Are there certain things in the Bible that make you wonder about God? Because when our expectations get shattered of what we want, it becomes hard to trust and believe. But we have to ask, who are we following? Who are we trusting him? Is it actually ourselves or is it him? And this is why Thomas, when he is so broken and so sad, he will say, until I see the marks in his hands and put my finger in those holes and my fist in his side, I will never believe. And this is why John 20, verse 26, Jesus shows up. Eight days later, so Thomas is sitting there for eight days with this, right? His disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. So he's there this time. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Now, can you imagine? Someone you thought, you're sure that they were dead. And all of a sudden, they are standing there in the room with you. The last thing you feel is peace. You probably watch The Walking Dead. You're like, zombie apocalypse. Here we go. It's all over. Imagine tonight if you are sleeping and you roll over and I'm standing on the side of your bed and I go, hey, peace be with you. Right? You would not feel peace. You'd be like, oh my goodness, what are you doing in my house? You walked out my locked doors. What are you? Well, he's trying to calm him down right here, trying to calm him down. 
chapter 20, verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Now, how did he know to say this to Thomas? He wasn't there when Thomas made these remarks, like, oh, unless I see the nails with my finger and my fist in his side, I won't believe. Well, he's Jesus. The risen Jesus is omniscient. And Thomas realizes that. And he has this weight of this feeling of this omniscience and power of Jesus. And he falls down. John 20, 28, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And if anybody ever tells you that Jesus never claimed to be God in the scriptures, they are wrong. He most certainly did. Any other time in the Bible when someone tries to worship someone other than God, they're always like, no, 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 don't do that. Peter, Paul, Moses, an angel in the book of Revelation, they immediately say, don't worship me, worship only God. Yet Jesus here receives Thomas's worship. But it doesn't stop there. In verse 29, it says, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's us. That's us. Thomas will now go on to die for his faith, his trust in Jesus. He will be speared to death in India for preaching the gospel. Now, that's the story of Thomas. And you could be thinking, well, okay, that's great for Thomas. Didn't help me at all. You might think if Jesus showed up and said, hey, stick your finger here and stick your fist in my side. Or, hey, just the Bible's true. It'd be a no-brainer. But I don't think that's true because Jesus didn't answer any of Thomas's questions. It took them a while working through this and understanding all that Jesus did to get them to the place where they understood the crucifixion. Jesus didn't explain to Thomas all the places where Thomas thought that Jesus failed. Jesus simply revealed himself to Thomas. And Thomas suspended his doubts and he embraced. J.D. Greer says this, speaking about Thomas, he quit demanding explanations and instead submitted to revelation. Now you might think, but why does he do that for Thomas and not for me? Well, this is why we're told we're given their testimony so we could believe that it is historical. We could actually check these things out. That the evidence they gave us would be sufficient for all of us who have ears to hear. And to be perfectly honest, and this might be hard for your ears to hear, many times when people don't believe, it's not because of a lack of evidence for the crucifixion or the resurrection. It's because usually we have some other reason for not wanting to believe. Some people will never look at the claims of Christ, will never look at the claims of Christianity. They're just like, I'm not going to listen. I'm just going to know. And it's these people who say, oh, that's not true. And they run the other direction. Many times we don't want to look because we don't want to know the truth. Because the people who have looked, the people who have stepped into it, have come to the place of actually believing. Many times when we don't believe, we have a different motive. Aldous Huxley, who came up with the term agnostic, he says this, I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning and consequently assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. For myself, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaningless was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. Meaning, I didn't want to believe, and so I didn't believe, and that freed me to do whatever I wanted. No constraints on me. Uh, Bart Ehrman, uh, actually right now on Amazon, he has this whole series that walks through how Jesus became God. He writes this book called God's Problem, and he says this, I think, in fact, that if God Almighty appeared to me and gave me an explanation that could make sense, and the explanation was so overpowering that I actually could understand, then I'd be the first to fall on my knees in humble submission and admiration. What he says is, until I get the explanation I want and the way I want, explain the way that I think I need it, then I'm going to be closed or biased at least against the evidence that points towards the resurrection. 
If Jesus showed up to them like he showed up to Thomas, where he didn't answer Thomas's questions, or maybe like even Job in the Old Testament and didn't answer the questions, would they actually trust him? Because they're not doing it the way that they want. One writer says this, what we often call a head problem is really a heart problem. We don't want to surrender our understanding or our wills. Guys, our minds will always reject what our hearts have first rejected. And this is why when Thomas says, my Lord and my God, he's essentially surrendering his heart to the risen Jesus at this, at this point. And then his entire life changes. People today will still have all kinds of excuses for not believing, for not wanting to look at the evidence for the resurrection. Some people will say the disciples were so filled with grief that they hallucinated the resurrection. Now this happens. It really does. Sometimes someone will die. You'll be so overwhelmed with grief that sometimes you will see that dead loved one. They miss them so much. But here it's not one person. It's 11, 12, more than that. One, it's 500 people at one point. And then they will say, well, yeah, but there's also mass hallucinations. And to be honest, true, there is mass hallucinations. But in these mass hallucinations, they're not hallucinating the exact same thing. Like if I said to you, pink elephant, You'd all start thinking of a, of a pink elephant. And if you could visualize that and it came to life, every single one of your pink elephants would look a little bit different because you're visualizing your own hallucination. Here, everybody saw the exact same thing. So it's not a hallucination. Well, then some people say, well, the disciples just willingly deceived everyone. They made these claims to bolster their own authority. And so, okay, what did the apostles get by doing that if that's true? We would say, oh, well, they probably got power and prestige and money. Okay, is that what they got? No, they got killed. That's what they got. I mean, the apostle Paul says we are the scourge of the earth. They taught people that God's kingdom was not of this world. So give up your money and your prestige and your power and serve those around you and accept suffering willingly. How's that for selling that to people? Let's tell everyone he resurrected. We'll get to be the leaders of a new religion. Except let's tell everyone Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. And so we'll give away our money and our power and our prestige. And when people try to kill us, we won't fight back. You know, if we're lucky, we'll get martyred through painful and humiliating deaths. And everybody said, yes, yeah, sign me up. Some people say that the resurrection was a legend that got added later. Like the disciples, they were like, oh, you know, Jesus is great. He taught us how to be kind and recycle. What a great guy. And then a fringe group comes up and takes over and makes all these supernatural claims. And they push out all these normal people and they silence them. Well, here's the thing. Historically speaking, there is absolute unity among the apostolic community with the creeds and the songs and the worship that they had in the early church. One to three years after Jesus' resurrection, there are Christian documents that demonstrate that the Christians were worshiping Jesus as God and celebrating his resurrection. There is no time for a legend to come in. And the apostles, if that was true, they would have stopped those legends. Some people say, well, Jesus, you know what? He just passed out on the cross. He didn't really die. You ever guys read the Da Vinci Code, Dan Brown? This is what Dan Brown thinks, okay? So Jesus passed out on the cross. And then uh, a couple days later, while he's in the tomb, it's cool. And so he revives in the tomb. So let's just think about that. Jesus gets crucified. So he's strung up on a cross, nails right here through his wrists. And when that happens, your hands would go like this because it would push all of your bones up. 
So it's like this. And then they take a spear and they shove it through his side into his heart because water and blood flows out. So pierces the sack, water and blood flows out, right? And then they got his feet nailed. And then what they do, I mean, the Romans are good at killing people. That was their job. You didn't make sure they were dead, you were dead. So they made sure people were dead. So then they put him in a tomb. No food or water for three days. And then he's like, ooh, it's nice and cool in here. And he revives. And he gets up and he pushes a three-ton rock out of the front of the tomb with his messed up hands. And then he takes out a Roman garrison with his kung fu. And then he sneaks into an upper room with the disciples like, ta-da, I'm the Lord of life. Stick your finger here if you can get it through my hands. And then he walks on the road to Emmaus with a couple guys on bloody feet and then goes back to Jerusalem, sneaks into the room eight days later just to say this to Thomas. And if you're Dan Brown, then what you do is you run off to a French castle, you marry Mary Magdalene, and then you have a bunch of kids. I mean, seriously, that's harder to believe than resurrection. See, people who don't believe usually have a different motive for not believing. And we simply just need to be honest about that. If you don't believe, what's the real reason? And if you do say, oh, I believe in Jesus and I believe in the resurrection, I just don't want to become a Christian. Well, the question then is, why not? Is it that we don't want to really submit to his call over our lives, that he is God and that we are not? Because I will tell you, most people don't want the real God. What we want is a divine buddy who tells us that we're okay and puts a stamp of approval on anything that we want to do. So when we look in the mirror, we say, yes, this is what God wants. God wants this. There are a lot of things about God that I think we will not understand that God is not going to do our own expectations. He's going to do what he needs to do in our lives. And we need to come to a place where we trust him more than we trust ourselves. But what that means is we must come to a place where we live in humility and submit to him. And if we aren't willing to approach the questions of Jesus with a sense of humility and submission to God's word and his truth, we're never going to know the truth about Jesus. We just won't. Jesus says in John 7, 17, that if anybody really wants to do the will of God, they will know if what he said was true or not. Because ours in the end is not fundamentally a head problem. In the end, it's a heart problem. See, Thomas's life was changed not from simply touching Jesus' hands or sticking his fist in his side, but from the understanding of what the gospel is. That Jesus died for Thomas, for it separated him from God and from one another. And that Jesus rose from the grave to bring Thomas back to life so he can be in relationship with God again. And I said Thomas would go on and give his life for this message. He gives everything for Jesus because Jesus had given everything for him. Jesus never gave up on Thomas, even when Thomas gave up and quit believing in him. Now, to me, it's also interesting that Jesus is God. He rises from the grave. He could have healed his entire body, but he doesn't. He still has those scars. Why? Why did he do that? I think those wounds are supposed to be front and center to remind us of the gospel, of God's steadfast love and his loyalty, because those wounds show that people may fail us, but Jesus never will that churches and religious leaders will fail you. I'm not setting you up for anything, okay? <laughs> but, but Jesus never will. Our own dreams may fall apart, but Jesus does not disappoint. When we have dark days, Jesus holds us in his nail-scarred hands. We may not understand all that Jesus is doing in the world, but we can trust him because there is no one who loves justice and the world that he made and grace more than God himself. And so I will tell you, go ahead and ask your questions. 
God is not afraid of your doubt. He is not sitting there going, oh, do I really exist? He's not doing that at all. Ask your questions. You may not find every answer the way you want your answers, but I think you can easily find that the evidence for the crucifixion and the resurrection is real and solid. J.D. Greer said this, Faith is the unexplainable meeting the undeniable, accepting what you cannot understand based upon what you can. Augustine said, called it fetus corns intellectum, faith seeking understanding. Our faith, our trust begins in God himself, and that moves us to a deeper understanding, especially of the gospel itself. And you might say, okay, great. The resurrection, it's true. What's the point then? What's the point of this thing called the resurrection? Glad you asked. See, the Apostle Paul will tell us if the resurrection did not happen, then our faith is useless because the resurrection proves all of God's claims are true and all the promises that he made are true. That when Jesus dies for our sin on the cross, it would not do anything for us unless he rose from the grave because taking away our sin is great, but how do we come back to life again? We come back to life because he offers us new life and he is the first fruits of that new life that he gives to us. The resurrection is everything. It is part of the gospel message that Jesus gives his life for us in our place for all that separated us from God and one another. And then he rises from the grave to then bring us back to life as he promised that God is good for every single one of his promises. And on a practical level for you, maybe you're really angry with somebody in your life. You just want them to suffer. You know what the cross tells you? Jesus suffered for that person. Jesus died in that person's place, and you don't have to crucify that person. And if someone's mad at you, you know what? Jesus died for you in your place. You don't have to crucify yourself any longer because he loves you and calls you to himself. But not just that, he wants to raise you a new life to bring you back into relationship with God again. And he is the only one who can. And this is the beauty of the gospel. This is the beauty of what the resurrection brings, a new life, a hopeful life that is found in him. And tonight, if you, today, if you would like to take communion, uh, it's right, you know, it's right here in the table. So you take a cracker and you break it as a reminder of Christ's body that was broken for you. You can dip it in the wine or the grape juice as a reminder of blood that was shed for us. And if you don't want to take communion that way, we still have the single use ones as well. And you take communion as a reminder of what God did. And this is the day we celebrate his death and his resurrection coming together, the full culmination of the gospel good news. And it is news that we can trust because God is trustworthy. If you need prayer, maybe you're in a place and you've had all these questions and doubts about God and you never felt like you could be honest enough about them, grab Sarah at the Welcome Center and we'll connect you with somebody who could pray with you and talk with you. It doesn't have to be tonight, like, I got, I got plans. Well, okay, great. Go do your plans. But we would still love to be able to talk to you at some point, to answer some of your questions, to walk through some of those things with you. And we are also a people who want to be those who give. And we give because God has first given to us. God has been so good to us. We do not pass a plate at Element. We put offering boxes next to the doors because we don't pass a plate because God has been generous, so it needs to be a response from us. And grab some of those sermon notes and the questions on the back and talk to your friends or your family or your gospel community through those things and talk about where your honest places of doubt are, the questions that you've had. And then maybe the way that God has shown you his truth and his life and his grace in such unexpected ways. And how you, maybe through the midst of some of your questions, still come to the place where you fully trust him through everything that you go through. Because I will tell you, God is good. And he is true to his promises. And he is risen.
you guys are slow. <laughs> let's, let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you so much for loving us the way that you do, for making promise after promise after promise and coming to fulfill those promises in yourself. We thank you that you have not left us on our own. We thank you that you have not left us to our own devices, but you have brought us to the place that we can trust even in the midst of our questions. God, to be honest, we are such a fickle people most of the time, heading left and right and not really knowing what's directly in front of us. And I ask that you would open our eyes so we'd see what is directly in front of us, which is you and the truth of who you are and what you have done. That we come to the place where we understand the good news that is the gospel. That it is good news for us and good news for the entire world because it shows that you have not left us. And you have come to rescue us in the midst of our pain and our hurt and even our doubts and our questions. And you lead us back to you. Father, I thank you for being our living hope. That you are the God of the living and you raise your people to life again to be in relationship with you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the hope you give. And we thank you for the resurrection and a meaning for us to be able to worship you every day restored to you in our lives. Amen. Now, before uh, you take communion today, uh, just take a second where you are and be honest. Like, what questions have you had? What doubts have you had? And kind of lay those before God. And if there's something that has not been answered, ask God to answer that for you, to bring something into your life that would begin to answer those questions that you have, that would lead you to the place where you understand that He is full of grace and love and He is good. And He is calling you back to Himself. And I'm going to warn you, we started with a couple slow songs, you know, at the beginning of the service. We're going to do one more here, but then it's going to pick up kind of quick. So take communion fast. (laughs) Be honest before God about where you are. Don't hide. He knows who you are anyway. And then in that utter honesty, let him be who he is, God overall.